0: Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God for bringing us once again together to um, draw near to Him, to worship Him in song, worship Him in giving, worship Him in thinking about our brothers and sisters in countries that are uh, persecuted, and also worship Him in the hearing of His Word. And may God speak to us as we consider Him this morning. Let me also um, express, um, you know, gratitude for our visitors. Uh, Thank you for visiting us. I see Eddie uh, and Mpo and Tabang. Uh, Welcome. We have been going through Mark, so uh, the practice of our church is what we call expository preaching. And so we preach um, through different books of the Bible, considering even the words of um, the words of Paul to the elders in Ephesus, when he says to them that they should preach the whole counsel of God. In other words, when you preach the whole counsel of God, you have no um, you know wiggle room to choose your favorite subjects. Uh, when a subject is hard to preach, you have to preach it. Uh, when uh, you don't like a particular subject, you still have to preach it. So you don't have hobby horses when you uh, come to the pulpit. That everything, uh, you know, as, as as Reformed people, everything you come to the pulpit is justification by faith. you you you'd manage to just put justification by faith somewhere there. But um, we've been going through more. And uh, now we are in chapter 6 We had to correct ourselves by going back to chapter 4 And looking at verse 30 to verse uh, 34 And now we're back, we're looking at chapter 6 Verse 1 up until verse 13 And we're looking at it under the subject The offense of the gospel The offense of the gospel Let us take this time and present it to the Lord in prayer And then uh, go into his word Indeed, Lord, your ancient words are ever true. They change us, they transform us, and they sanctify us. We pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is nothing much worse than the feeling of rejection. It starts at an early age, doesn't it? Kids on the playground reject other kids, or they make fun of you. And it gets worse when you're a teenager. Your so-called friends post pictures on Instagram um, or WhatsApp statuses, and they are all hanging out, having a blast, but you were excluded. People talk behind your back, or maybe you've been rejected by a special girl A boy that you really liked As you get older it's more complicated A lot of others find They find it hard to make friends And this is even true in the church People come to church expecting to make friends But it's hard to break through the thick membrane of cliques That exist even in the church Rejection in the marketplace is also discouraging Maybe you can't get a job or You can't get into the university that you want to get into or the college that you want to get to. You keep getting rejection letters. Family rejection is also really hard, isn't it? Some feel rejected by their parents. Some parents feel rejected by their kids. Husbands can feel rejected by their wives and wives feel rejected by their husbands. Rejection is hard and it hurts. And the rejection we face as Christians is equally as difficult. When people find that we are Christians, conversations can become awkward around you. When we share the gospel with people and they reject the gospel, sometimes they go on to reject us as people as well. And if you hold certain Christian values, you are certain to be rejected by the culture. As the moral fabric of of the culture continues to erode Policies are also being put in place To police preaching on areas that are considered culturally sacred You you can't preach about the, the uh, alphabet gang uh, You can't preach about abortion and so on and so forth The, the, the culture rejects biblical um, uh, 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 teaching On all kinds of topics from homosexuality To abortion We we should expect this Shouldn't we Rejection is a reality And it's hard It it is hard And if if we are honest We fear rejection don't we And so sometimes the fear of rejection Keeps us from faithfulness On the mission of Christ Because we don't want to be Rejected for the gospel We shrink from sharing the gospel or living distinctively as Christians in the world. When we find ourselves in the midst of unbelievers, we become incognito believers. We, 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 we become James Bond Christians. We, 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 we are uh, secretly Christians and they don't know because we fear being rejected. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 if you haven't. Or switch your Bibles on to uh, Mark chapter 6. In our text this morning, we find Jesus being rejected in his hometown in Nazareth. And then Jesus tells his disciples they'll experience rejection too on account of the gospel. Uh, what should we do in the face of rejection? And how does the gospel itself help us not to fear this rejection? There are some of the questions um, our text here. As I ask them that our text answers this morning Let's look at Mark chapter 6 verse 1 up until verse 13 Shall we read? I read from the ESV Mark chapter 6 verse 1 to 13 This is God's word, let us hear him He went away from there and came to his hometown And his disciples followed him And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not is, is not this the carpenter, son of the son of Mary, and, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are, are not his sisters here with us? And, and and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do; he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages, teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the stuff, no bread, no bag, no money in the belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God. Our passage is divided into two parts, um, if you have uh, noticed. And and I think even your Bibles uh, do that. Uh, Some of your Bibles do that. You see Jesus in Nazareth in verses 1 to verse 6. And Jesus sending out the twelve disciples in verse 7 to verse 13. These stories seem unrelated But there's a common theme that holds them together The the, the theme of rejection In the first story, Jesus is rejected in his hometown In the second story, Jesus tells his disciples to expect rejection As they proclaim the gospel Let's start by looking at Jesus in Nazareth in chapter five, we saw that Jesus has power over nature. Remember, he stilled the storm, the raging storm. He has power over demons, the 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 the, um, the, uh, the demoniac who had chains, uh, who was chained, uh, was was freed by Jesus. He has power over disease. Remember the the woman who suffered for twelve years with the issue of blood, and power over death. Remember the young twelve-year-old girl who was raised by Jesus. So Jesus' power can transform fear into faith, even among the most unlikely people. But when Jesus comes to his home, uh, to his hometown, there's a very different response. You know, you expect that he comes to his hometown, they welcome him as a hero, and they they have more faith than other towns. But so there's a different response here. When you look at verse 1 to verse 6, they are bracketed by amazement. Jesus comes to his hometown in verse 1, and the people of Nazareth are astonished by him in verse 2. But Jesus marvels because of their unbelief when you look at verse 6. They are amazed by Jesus' words and deeds. He's amazed by their unbelief. And this is what we learn in these verses. Sometimes, the amazing gospel is rejected with amazing unbelief. What does it mean that they are astonished by his words and his deeds? They are astonished because they don't understand why an ordinary guy like Jesus could teach the way he teaches and do the mighty works that he was doing. But their astonishment is not belief in Him. They don't see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. R- remember as we talk about this, this overarching theme of, of Mark, that, that one of the things that Mark wants us to see uh, is, is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God Himself. And so that is the thing that He starts with. And, and now He comes to His hometown and that is the thing that they miss. Instead they they, they only see an ordinary carpenter from a small town The son of Mary, an ordinary guy with ordinary brothers and and sisters They are astonished by him But their astonishment is really unbelief One reason we know this is because we are told in in verse 3 That they took offense at him Do you see it? they took offense at him. Uh, this is at the heart of verse uh, verses 1 to verse 6. The, the, the word translated offense is used 8 times in Mark's gospel. And it, it 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 always has to do with a stumbling block to believe. So they are amazed by Jesus' ordinariness. Right? They are offended by him. His ordinariness causes them to stumble. And they don't believe that the gospel continues to be a stumbling block even today, isn't it? They're a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, as First as Corinthians chapter one twenty-three tells us. It's really a simple message: Christ died for our sins. But, but, but this message is a stumbling block to Jews because they have no categories for an ordinary crucified. Messiah And it's folly to to culture Gentiles Who cling to the wisdom of the world Right The the belief in yourself You can do what you put your mind to Kind of uh, uh, You know uh, World view And so you tell these people about a crucified Messiah And they think this is foolishness The gospel is amazing And it's truly good news Sinners can have forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. And that's what makes unbelief so amazing. That's what makes unbelief ridiculous. I think I've said this before and I'm saying it again, that the height of folly, the height of foolishness is to understand the gospel and reject it. And we see this here. In verse 6 we are told Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Well what amazes Jesus about humanity is not its sinfulness but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. But they do not even honor him as a prophet in in, in his own hometown. His relatives don't honor him. Not even the members of his whole own household honor him. If you read the Gospel of John, you will notice that even his family, his his brothers and sisters, did not even believe in him. Well, uh, this was during his his time, um, his three years of ministry. They did not believe in him. Obviously, we see uh, James, um, you know, who becomes a, a great uh, a preacher of the gospel, and, and Judas uh, Jude his 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 other brother uh who writes the the, the letter to uh you know uh, in his name uh people who who would think most likely to you would think most likely to embrace the the, the gospel to embrace jesus often reject him don't they some like jesus' family who have every opportunity to believe don't believe and some like the Gentile man with a demon in chapter 5 Who you would never guess would believe Actually do believe And this is amazing No one can predict who will receive Jesus And who will reject Jesus There's no formula to this We haven't gotten the formula 2000 years of, of church history and we haven't really gotten the formula We just preach the gospel And people just come to Christ There's somebody who said this That when you get to heaven There will be two things that amazes you. Uh, The people that are there that you think wouldn't have been there. And the fact that you are also there. (laughs) There's no formula to this. The gospel comes, breaks stony hearts, draws us to Christ. It is the same today. Some who have every opportunity to believe the gospel don't believe the gospel. I think of the 60% of young adults who grew up in the church hearing the gospel but leave the church and its gospel. Whereas some who spend most of their lives far from God do come to believe in God and live for God. We we simply can't predict who will believe and who won't believe. That is why the church must never have a target market, right? Right? We must never have a target market and say This is our target market We preach to these kinds of people We preach to everyone We preach the gospel to everyone Let's look now at the second section of our text this morning The sending of the disciples This section is not necessarily linked to the first section textually But it's linked thematically In other words, with themes Themes Right? You, you would you would obviously as you read, I mean one could preach these two sections separately and that's what I thought I would do, but as I looked at the themes of these two sections they, 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 they connect thematically. And now Jesus was rejected by those in his hometown. The disciples are called to declare the gospel about Jesus. And they will also experience rejection. This is in verse 7 to verse 13. It is divided into two parts as well. In verse 7 and in verse uh, 12 to 13, we have a narrative section where Jesus' uh, disciples are called and sent out. In verse 8 and ver- to, to verse 11, we have a speech by Jesus giving them instruction for their journey. Uh, these two sections give us two truths. That we learn here. Uh, Disciples do what Jesus does and will face what Jesus faced. First, let's look at that one. Disciples do what Jesus does. In verse 7, we are told that Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out and gave them authority over unclean spirits. In verse 12 to 13, again we are told they went out and proclaimed the the uh, the people that that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They are doing what Jesus himself did. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. If you remember, chapter one, verse fourteen. Jesus cast out demons. Chapter one, verse twenty-five to twenty-six. Jesus healed. The sick, chapter 1, verse 32-34 So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus now commissioned his disciples here To proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons and to heal the sick Jesus had a ministry of word and deed Jesus' disciples have a ministry of word and deed Disciples do what Jesus does But that's not the only thing that's true of Jesus' disciples here Now secondly, Disciples face what Jesus faced. We see this in Jesus' speech in verse 8 to verse 11. In these verses, Jesus gives two sets of commands. The first is in verse 8 to verse 9, and the second is in verse, uh, 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 ten to 11. Look at the first, verse 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread no bag no money in their belts but to wear sandals and put on two tunics in, in the first in, in the first set of commands they are told not to bring uh, what, what not to bring on their mission they are they are not to take bread bag or money in their belts they, they are not to take two tunics they are only to take a staff and sandals they, they are only to take the barest of essentials now, the question would be, why is this? Why why is he giving this kind of command? Well, Jesus doesn't want them to place their trust in their supplies or their training, but rather in the one who sends them, right? A the true service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. It's just like the Israelites. When they were fleeing Egypt, They were called to eat their Passover with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, and their staff in their hand. This is Exodus chapter 12. In the same way, Jesus wants his disciples to go in dependency on God. Remember Gideon had to go to battle with the Midianites with only 300 troops. When you look at Judges chapter 6 to chapter 7. In the same way Jesus wants his disciples to go In dependency on God Sometimes we trust Ourselves Trust our abilities Trust our resources Whenever we do God's work We need to do God's work God's way And you must be sure As I think City Start said this That when you do God's work, God's way, it will never lack God's supply. Right? When you do God's work, God's way, it will never lack God's supply. The same is true for us today. The church is called to proclaim the gospel to the nations until Christ returns. And our budget will... Sometimes rise Our budget will go down And our budget will suffer and be in between We are still called to Preach the gospel We are still called to preach the gospel Whether our budget is is, You know at its peak And and flourishing uh, Or whether our budget is suffering We should never at any point Forget why we exist as a church I'm not saying those things are not important, they are important. But if those things are our only focus and we find ourselves focused on that, we have lost the mission. It's tempting to think we need more than the gospel to proclaim the gospel. But we simply need the word and the spirit. (laughs) To depend on God in his mission means to we, we, we must trust God's way of fulfilling the mission. Christ called disciples to proclaim the gospel. And he told them how to proclaim the gospel. He he, he told them to peck light, to depend on God in his mission. It, 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 this means we must trust God's way of fulfilling the mission. We we, we don't need a bunch of fancy church programs and people to fulfil uh, 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 the mission. We don't need gurus, right? Jesus chose untrained ordinary men, and he called them to be with him. And, and and then he called them to a simple ministry of the word and deed. This reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthians in First Corinthians chapter two, verse one to five. Remember that the Corinthians were in an environment and a culture. That really prized uh, philosophy and, 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 and human wisdom, intellect. And so that's the posture that they expected Paul to come with when he came to Corinth. And listen to what he says to them. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, when I came, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Do you see that? Your faith might not rest in where? In the power in in, 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 in in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Because uh, brothers and sisters what we want what we desire is not for you to go out there and and keep saying pastor garaba said this pastor garaba said that uh, it's fine to quote me if you think i said something nice but what we want is for you to have confidence in the, the in god and his word that that's why we preach expositorily because we don't have uh, you know uh, you know uh, our, our own ideas to 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 give to you we, we have the word of God to give to you because that is where your confidence must lie. We want you to have confidence in the fact that God is true and he said it in his word. We don't need the so-called bread, bag and belt of money to fulfill the mission of Christ. We simply need to be faithful to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. We, we need the word and the spirit and this should encourage you. You don't have to be a Billy Graham or to have a seminary degree to be used by God in advancing his mission. As one commentator says ill prepared disciples typify believers in every age and place who are sent out by the Lord of the harvest. No one is ever, is, is never prepared for ministry. That's what Jesus' first set of commands teaches us. Now, the second set of commands is in verse 10 to 11. It, it teaches us what to expect as the church proclaims the gospel. He he told his disciples to stay in whatever house they entered until they departed from there. And if any place would not receive them or, or, or wouldn't listen to the gospel, they were called to shake the dust of their feet uh, 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 when they left as a testimony against those people. And this was powerful. Let me explain why. It is powerful. You see, in ancient Israel, when a Jew was traveling in a Gentile territory, he would have to shake the dust of his feet before he returned home. And this was to to keep the promised land from being polluted by Gentile debt. So, so when Jesus' disciples are called to shake off the dust of their feet, if someone wouldn't listen to the gospel... They, they, are, they are making a, a, a really remarkable uh, a statement here They are essentially calling Jews Unbelieving Gentiles Jesus is telling his disciples what to expect right? When they are on mission They should expect unbelief even among Jews Just like Jesus experienced unbelief Even in his own hometown And the, the, the fact is this Salvation is not on the basis of ethnicity. It is not on the basis of nationality or race. As one commentator says, even in the promised land, there will be those who reject the promised one. Even in the promised land, there will be those who reject the promised one. Have you wondered... Why even our children who grow up in families where we we catechize them, we teach them the word, we we raise them in the word. And when they grow up, they just reject it. Even in the promised land. There would be those who reject the promised one. Do you see the connection between the two parts of our message this morning? Jesus experienced rejection and unbelief even in, 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 in his hometown. His disciples should expect the same rejection and unbelief. But those who, who do what Jesus do will face what Jesus faced. And the, the same is true for us today. We should expect to face opposition, persecution, rejection and unbelief as the church proclaims the gospel. Jesus faced these things. So will we. It's discouraging sometimes, I know But there's a reason to take heart The rejection of the gospel in verse 1 to verse 6 Points to the ultimate rejection of Jesus Which which he predicted Turn your Bibles to to Mark chapter 8 We're going to conclude with these In Mark chapter 8 in verse 31 We are told this It says, Jesus began to teach them uh, His disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. Jesus' disciples didn't like this. The Jews had no category for a suffering Messiah. The, the, the kind of Messiah that they were expecting was a Messiah who comes in in, in, in military victory to destroy the Roman uh, uh, government. So for, for them, deliverance was in a way political. So, so Peter rebuked, uh, 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 rebuked Jesus after Jesus says this in verse thirty-two, but Jesus went on to teach his disciples that they would be rejected too. In verse thirty-four to verse thirty-eight, this is what he says to them. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. For those who follow Jesus will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they will be rejected for the gospel's sakes too. They must pick up their cross like Jesus picked up his. So those who do what Jesus does will face what Jesus faced. But there's an important truth found in these verses that helps us face the rejection that accompanies the gospel. The rejection we'll face for the gospel is nothing compared to the rejection we'll face from God if we reject the gospel or if we are ashamed of the gospel. But the opposite is also true. The eternal glory that awaits us also far outweighs the rejection in this life. In the same way that that Christ's rejection on the cross led to His glorious resurrection, our rejection in this life will result in glory as well. And here's my sermon in one sentence. The promise of the gospel should motivate us to proclaim the gospel in the face of rejection Rejection is a reality And it's hard we, we don't have any control Over the response of the gospel, do we? We are simply called to take the gospel To the nations until Christ returns The, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ Must be proclaimed We, we must call people to repentance And, uh, to repentance and tell them There's forgiveness of sins in Jesus This is the only way people will be saved This is our mission. So as you go back this week to your different uh, um, places, your communities, your workplaces, be reminded that you belong to Christ. And make sure that everyone knows. And when there's an opportunity for someone to hear the gospel, make sure that you tell them about Jesus. Be like Paul who says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you see how we are called to do what Jesus did? But on the other hand, we must not forget that we will face what Jesus faced. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for for your word. We acknowledge the fact that we are prone to wonder, prone to live the God we love, prone to be ashamed, prone to hide in moments where we should stand out. We pray that you give us the strength we are cognizant of the fact that we do not have that strength in us. As the song says, the strength to follow your command could never come from me. Indeed, you say in your word, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. We pray that you help us, remind us of the grace that is ours in Christ. Strengthen us, that we may be confident, we may be bold, and we may stand out as those who belong to you. In this, we pray in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.